Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. This week on the Heinemann Podcast, a conversation with author Lucy Calkins on leadership. In Leading Well, Building School-Wide Excellence in Reading and Writing, Lucy Calkins draws on the transformative work that she and her colleagues at the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project have done in partnership with school leaders over the last 30 years. While a school leader should be inspirational, Lucy says leaders need to be much more than that. Lucy says making monumental change in literacy education is no small thing, and the most powerful leaders lead through influence, not compliance rallying people to believe in the cause. She also tells us that a good leader reminds us there is dignity in learning and that leaders need to make themselves vulnerable as public learners to foster the kind of environment that will help their teams try new things and continually outgrow themselves. I started out by asking Lucy what led her to write a leadership book. So I guess it's a couple things. First of all, I am a leader. I spend a lot of my time trying to rise to the challenge of leading well. And it's very complicated work. It's what I think about a lot of the time, just in terms of my, it's very personal for me. I think about how do I be a better leader? And I'm pretty self-critical and I have a lot of people giving me tips um, about how to be a better leader. So that's that's a part of it. And then I think the other thing is that when we develop the curriculum and, and engage in professional development, it's almost like the schools are our sons and daughters. And I feel like it's my calling to help all of these schools to do the best possible. And uh, I've come to believe that a really good school leader makes the world of difference. I'm so lucky to be connected to incredible school leaders and really to a network of school leaders get that, that become better because they, they have each other. And so I'm learning from them all the time. And I think the book is an effort to take what I've learned from my own leadership and from my partnering with school leaders around the world and try to kind of bottle it in some way and, and, and to do that for the sake of the kids. Lucy, talk about how this book was written. Well, first of all, it was lived before it was written. Um, and one of the reasons that uh, you see the contributing authors, Lori Pessa and Mary Aaronworth, is really the three of us are at the helm of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. So, so much of what I put down on the page is really things that we've learned together. A lot of the content is, is also content that we've taught at principal's conference days. So first of all, the book was lived and it, it existed in oral tradition. We have an institute every year for leaders and about 350 leaders from around the country come together. And Mary and Lori and I and some of our other colleagues, Amanda Hartman and, and Audra and Emily, when we lead those 
Vet Leadership Institute, we have sessions on things like giving feedback and on creating traditions that bind a school together. So we drew on all of the teaching we've been doing and all of the work with school leaders that we've done. I actually was up in the mountains. Um, one of the reasons for the cover is that I, I, we have a camp up in the Adirondack Mountains and I retreated there for a month this summer. And my son had just gotten married, my oldest son. And I think I was in one of those um, places in life, which is a little bit of a turning point. You know, your son gets married and it's sort of feels like you've just turned a chapter in your own life. And uh, so I, I took some time to just try to think, what do I have to say that's most important to school leaders? You write that a lot of this book was forged in the fires of our own regret. What do we learn from those regrets? What does it teach you about being a leader? Well, you know, I wrote that because otherwise you could read the book and think, you know, that I somehow believe I do all these things, you know, and, and it's one of those, you know, I, I often talk about leadership and I have my colleagues sitting right there in the room and I'll, you know, I'll talk about how incredibly important it is to compliment people. And I look out at them and I know that I forget to compliment my own people as much as I should. And, you know, so I think I was partly just acknowledging that it's, it's easier said than done. You know, one of the things about being a leader is you cannot do it all. You just can't. So there's always too much to do. And part of what a leader has to do is to write one's own job description. And that is you have to prioritize and you have to decide what are you going to put your time towards and what are you not going to put your time towards. So I think I have, I'm always aware of the things that I'm not doing. Uh, I'm always aware of the priorities that are left on the side that I'm hoping to get to soon. And then there've been some times where I've, I look back and I think I really blew that, you know, I just blew it. And I've tried to learn as I get older to say, I'm sorry. I think that helps a lot to be able to just say, I totally messed up. Who do you think this book is for? Who are you hoping will read this book? Well, I wrote it for one particular group of people, and that is the the school leaders in schools that are attempting reading and writing workshop. And I'm trying to help them to do the best possible job. But of course, really, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of their teachers and I'm thinking of their children and I'm thinking of the parents of their children. Um, so I, I really wrote it for those, for those schools, the, the whole community. Now, I believe the book has a lot of insights that just about leadership in general. My son has just been promoted into a leadership role and I've been teaching him some of what I know about giving feedback, for example, or about the importance of setting your people up so they can do their job. You know, to the, the good part of being a leader is not just what we do, but how we organize our leaders in our community. So I think there's a lot of the book that would be relevant to any leader. But I really wrote it thinking about the principles in the schools that are attempting to do bold and beautiful literacy work. And I'm, I'm trying to help them to do it as well as possible. I'm sure literacy coaches are going to read it. Yeah, there'll be a there'll be a uh, there'll be teacher leaders who read it. I think it's it's for people who lead um, and who lead particularly lead literacy reform. Uh, how how will they read it? You know, principals are come come to this work. They're they're in different places. So certainly, it will be very very helpful for a principal who's new to the work. Who either the school's been doing reading and writing workshop and the principal's new, or the principal's kind of thinking I might be leading my school towards reading and writing workshop, and I, I kind of want to know how to do it. And for those principals, I would recommend they start at the beginning and travel the path. There are a lot of principals um, who are leading schools that have been doing this work for th three, four, five years, and 
And I should have written this book a long time ago, you know, and I know they're going to be like, dang, it's coming out, you know, too late, but it's not too late because really the hardest part about leadership is not just leading in the beginning, it's sustaining that, that reform, um, in the middle. Uh, so for those principles, I kind of imagining they're going to maybe skip some of the earlier chapters or skim them and kind of come more more into part two. And then there'll be people who are interested in particular topics. You know, there's chapters there, for example, the chapter on feedback or on instructional rounds or on traditions or the chapter on test prep and standardized testing. So there'll be people who just are interested in particular chapters. And and I think the book will work very well as seminars on topics like that. I could imagine a, a district, you know, um, uh, coming together and discussing the chapter on feedback, for example. You write about the importance of literacy reform and you write that it can help create a culture of improvement. How does literacy reform create that culture of improvement? It's the culture of of a school being a place where everybody's learning curve is sky high. So it's a place where kids are learning, but teachers are also learning and principals are learning. It's 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 that everybody is a risk taker and everybody's got each other's backs. And we created a place that's safe enough for us to try things and to mess up and to reflect on how we did and to set new goals and to get better. I think ultimately the power of a reading and writing workshop, a part of it is the actual power of reading and writing, but a part of it is that for too long, Schools have been places where, you know, they kind of resemble an egg carton um, with each teacher in his or her little container with the, you know, door closed. And I think that that the shared curriculum of units of study or of a reading writing workshop writ large, it's a way of bringing people out of their individual classrooms into a into a think tank uh, where together we can kind of make the school into all that it can be. How is literacy reform a tool for improvement? Well, first of all, literacy is at the heart of a, of, a, of, of a school. So thinking about how do you lift the level of literacy instruction is really thinking about instructional reform in general. And of course, there's so many parallels between literacy and math, you know, and that's a whole, that'll be the next book because um, that's a really exciting topic too. But, you know, Linda Darling Hammond once said that you can't really have a PLC, a professional learning community, unless you have a shared curriculum. And um, I think that I've written a book where I try to show how a shared curriculum can be part of uh, creating a vital learning community in a school, a place where where everybody's learning curve is sky high um, and where teachers are learning and the principal's learning and the kids are learning and it's sort of all happening alongside each other. You write about how it's important for us to come together as learners to build a community to do this work. And, and you write that the work is messy and it's hard, but, but we can do it. How do we best get started in that community building? That's a, a huge question. And let me back up to the, the part of it that I, I want to address first. You know, what teachers are being asked to do today is staggering. We need to outgrow ourselves at a tremendous clip. You know, what, what teachers need to teach is we're being asked to teach fifth graders work that that most of us didn't do till we were in college. And these expectations are rising for teachers at the same time in which graduate schools of education, schools of education in general are really under siege. And more and more people are able to get their master's degree from 
from a little online program in one one state in this country, 40% of the new teachers got their master's and got certified through an, an online program where instead of student teaching, you can just sort of watch some videos. So we've got a population of teachers who actually have come into this work with less background than ever. And meanwhile, these expectations on teachers are so sky high. So I think what's really clear is that the school needs to become the place where teachers learn how to teach. Uh, the, it needs to be the locus of teacher education. And for that to happen, there really needs to be a priority for teachers working together as a community. So I think it starts really with grade levels of teachers. And I think that principals are wise to say to teachers, in this school, we don't teach alone. It's not going to be one of those, let a, a thousand flowers bloom because thousand flowers don't bloom. You know, frankly, we, we're being asked to do more than any one of us can do alone. And I think it's important for principals to say, I need, you know, third grade, I need you guys to, to figure out your curriculum, your shared curriculum, and to figure out how you're going to support each other in teaching it. And to really work towards having teachers plan curriculum together, be in and out of each other's classrooms, bringing their kids together sometimes. So two classrooms of kids are in the room at the same time. One teacher is in charge of this unit, one teacher is in charge of that unit, so that there's a, a sense of, first of all, the grade level as a unit for professional developments. Why is it important for leaders to share the vision and why is it important to rally others around it? So one thing we know is that learners tend to learn rapidly when we're new at something and then to plateau. So, you know, the neurosurgeon who's been doing neurosurgery for 30 years is not that much more accomplished than the neurosurgeon who's been doing neurosurgery for three years. And one of the challenges as a principal and as a teacher educator is to help people to break past that plateau because it's in, it's, it's tempting as, a, as an educator to get into a kind of rinse and repeat. I've done this before, you know, I know how to do it. And every year you just sort of do it again. So creating a school which is committed to sort of the, a continual improvement to constantly constantly reflecting and, and aspiring, that means setting goals. And it's a beautiful thing when a principal can help the school to come together around a sense of shared goals um, so that we're not just kind of like a Saturday morning flea market with all kinds of different haphazard things happening, but instead there's a sort of coming together to accomplish work that feels important. You write about how a, an effective leader needs to be unflagging in their positivity about the work. And you say, don't fuel doubts. How do leaders make it easy as possible for teachers to feel successful in, in, that, in that space? Well, when I said that leaders need to be unflagging in their positive energy, I was really talking about the beginning. And I'm just saying, this will be hard. Making a monumental change in literacy education is no small thing. Sometimes when teachers begin to raise questions and to feel insecure, uh, that makes principals feel insecure and raise questions. And to some extent, you need to be all in in order to get the results. I think principals need to think very carefully about the direction they're going to take a school in and to be all in when they make a decision. And you say that the language and the terminology that they use makes a big difference as well. Why is that? First of all, it's a little slightly silly thing in a way, but some people talk about the work of a reading and writing workshop and they use my name. I've literally heard people say we do the Lucy or something like that, which I'm like, oh man, you know, please don't. You know, the work is so much bigger than than any one person. I mean, first of all, that's insulting to my colleagues. Um, I work with a team of about a hundred other people, many of whom are co-authors, all major figures in the field. And, you know, you, you can't call this by one person's name. 
but I also think it's important to not uh, not refer to this work as a program. This is this is not a program. Um, it says it's a stance or it's a project or it's an effort or an endeavor. Or a, you know, I think in that way the the language matters. You mentioned before about an important skill for a leader is to know when to let something go, know where to put their energy and their focus. How should we determine the leadership responsibilities? Well, I try in the book to talk about what matters most for the school leader. I think there are a lot of jobs that that a a leader can outsource, and then there's some which you can't outsource. Um, So I say to principals that the school leader does need to be the inspirational leader, um, does need to be the person who picks up that the standard, the flag and calls, you know, all the and free, you know, come out, come out wherever you are. Uh, this is our, this is our direction. I think it's really important that we lead through influence, um, not not through compliance. I cite some research by Lyle Kirkman who used Myers-Briggs tests to determine, uh, to, to sort of assess people's personalities and said that educational leaders on the whole have personalities that tend to be a lot like bookkeepers and that, which is like horrifying, and that School principals often lead through compliance with a kind of um, got my list, checking it twice, got to find out who's naughty or nice sort of mentality. And, you know, that really rang true when I heard it. It is true that there are a lot of principals, a lot of district leaders um, who, you know, they're trying to see if people are implementing the program and they've got their checklist. Are you implementing the program? And what, what that study showed is the really powerful school leaders are ones who lead instead through influence, um, through, through rallying people to believe in a cause and to invest heart and soul in, in work that feels big and significant. I think that that, is, that job of being the inspirational leader is all important. I also think that, that the principal needs to demonstrate for the people, his or her teachers, that there's dignity in being a learner and that it's incredibly important when a principal says, oh, I need it. I need to take a crash course in this. Uh, I, I need a mentor. I can I try it? And will you give me feedback? Um, oh my gosh, this is this is hard for me. Um, I need I need help with this. That kind of um, willingness to be vulnerable and and to be an open learner is is I think again. A, something that the principal needs to do. One of the things you, you talk about that's important is for a leader to develop other leaders and to delegate. How do we best delegate and and develop those other leadership roles? Well, one of the things I, I in a lot of our schools, we see principals take reading and writing. Let's Let's for now talk about a K through five school. You take reading and writing K through five and principals think who is parenting writing and phonics K2 and who's parenting reading K2? Who's parenting writing 3-5? Who's parenting reading 3-5? And let's say the principal said, I'm going to take on the job of sort of being the leader of 3-5 of reading. Then the principal can lead 3-5 reading in a way which is deliberately meant as a model for how others will lead their quadrants. So for example, if uh, teachers are, are using units of study, the principal can get those units and read the introduction uh, to the units of study, which is just two, three pages, to get a, a little bit of a sense of the of the curriculum. The principal can go into three, four, and grades three, four, five classrooms and figure out who are some teachers who are doing this work really, really well, um, and then watch them 
and study what is it that they're doing and then think, how do I democratize those practices so that other teachers are doing that? Um, so the principal can deliberately work with his or her quadrant in a way that then shows the AP or the uh, literacy coach or the you know director of ESL or whoever the other people are who are leading the other quadrants, ways in which they can lead as well. How do you tap into a teacher's talent? What's the best way to approach drawing that teacher's talent out to sort of inspire them to start to take on that leadership role? Well, first of all, I think that all of our school, there's just so many people who are dying to be asked to lead. And that really, um, it's it's not that there's a couple leaders. There's Almost everyone can be a leader in something. You know, I, I've learned from different principles. Uh, one of the people that I learned a lot from is Carmen Freña, who went on to become the chancellor of New York City schools. And Carmen was a spectacular principal. In her school, she'd ha- she had about four or five teachers at every grade level. And one of them was the lead teacher for writing, let's say in second grade. One was the lead teacher for writing, one a lead teacher for reading, one a lead teacher for social studies, one for math, one for science. And then let's take the writing, lead teacher for second grade would be part of an articulation team that was K through five. And the writing articulation team would meet to talk about how do we create consistency across the grades and and handle some of that articulation between the grades. Um, And then Carmen would make sure that the lead teacher in writing had access to extra PD in writing. This was just one of the ways in which she kind of created this grid-like organization that held her school together. Now, when she had parent-teacher nights, um, the parents would come in. Instead of the parents going to one teacher's class uh, to hear what that teacher said about how reading, writing, math, science, and social studies would go, parents would get together and the writing lead teacher for second grade would talk to all the parents about what writing instruction's like in second grade in this school. And the reading lead teacher would talk to all the parents about what reading instructions like in this school. So in that way, Carmen was trying to make sure that she was building off of teacher strengths and helping to kind of create a infrastructure that held together instruction across the school. You write about the importance of a one-on-one with colleagues to sort of open up that opportunity to listen and learn more. Why is that so important? Mm-hmm. I think you're probably talking about the chapter that I wrote on feedback which is one of my favorite chapters. And just let me let me say a little bit about that chapter. It's probably in the whole book, it's probably the one that is most reliant on what I've learned from other people. So at, at Teachers College, we work with about 350 school principals once a month, um, principals and superintendents. So all of the people in, sort of in our nearby area come together. And we always bring a, a speaker to work with them. And we brought some absolutely amazing speakers who have taught them and really taught me about feedback. And I'm, I'm speaking particularly of David Rock and Sheila Heen. David's a neurologist and talks about sort of the brain um, in relationship to feedback. And Sheila Heen is the author of uh, Thanks for the Feedback, which is a book not about giving feedback, giving good feedback, but about receiving feedback. And I was just earlier today retelling um, something I learned from Sheila. Um, I love, you know, reading professional books or hearing other professionals talk and just, you know, learning from them. So, you know, one of the things Sheila said, for example, is I thought it was so striking. She said, leadership is about having hard conversations. And when you're having a hard conversation, it's really helpful to begin and know that you need to have empathy for that other person, to listen with empathy. And she says, and, and often that's not easy to do because it's hard because you're kind of mad. She said, you want to remember that fire men 
train themselves to run into burning buildings. And that is against anybody's instinct. And in the same way, listening with empathy is against our instinct in that in that moment. We're mad at this person. That's why we're having this hard conversation. We're, we're, we, we feel like it's, it's all their fault, you know, and we're listen with empathy. Train yourself. Remember, firemen can run into a burning building. You can listen for empathy with empathy, even when it's hard. And then she said, secondly, remember that you, you, I can't figure out the other person's intentions. She showed a little screen of a, a big dot chasing a little dot and well, of a, of a little dot and a big dot going across the screen. And she said, what's happening here? And I'm like, the big dot is chasing the little dot. And she's like, no, it's, it's just a little dot and a big dot. It's not, it, there's nobody chasing anybody. You know, she says, you're putting your intentions onto these dots. And we tend to do that when we listen to people. And finally, she said, in terms of the blame thing, it's co-constructed. Both people had a part and it doesn't really matter what the percentages are. Just acknowledge that there's been some trouble and 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 we both have a role in it and and on onward so i find having hearing people say things like that and she talked to us for a day and this was one of the kernels i took but i think it helps you to be a good leader if you have some of these principles in your mind because it makes me not just react by instinct but instead kind of have some guiding principles that i'm trying to live by. And so in the book, um, because I am so lucky to be around all these great conversations, sometimes I just put those conversations in there and talked a little bit about what I've done with some of some of what I've learned. Along with that, you say, you know, teachers need to be seen, they need to be heard. And you say that, you know, similar to how we work with our students in early writing, you know, they need to be coached out into the open to to take on more roles in the building. Why is that so important to do? Why is it so important to initiate that invitation? I think we have to remember that the principal's job to a large extent is to lead the whole school. So there's a way in which the corridors, the library, the parents bringing kids in and taking kids, you know, all of that is a big part of the principal's job. And, you know, the assessment system, the the events, the whole school events, the the PTA, the all, all of that. And I think it's it's important that we, in a school, that we create, that that's really creating to a large extent the, the culture of the building. And I think that needs to be co-constructed. So I think, um, for example, that the traditions that a school takes on uh, is part of what shapes the school and makes it into into what it is. Just like the traditions make a family into what the family is, it's a it's a statement of value. Uh, so so I think. For example, in in some schools that I know, uh, when the kindergartners have their very first writing celebration ever, the end of September, let's say, at 1 PS 59, they learn a little chant, two, four, six, eight, our stories are really great. One, two, three, four, we can't wait to write some more. And the kids have this little chant and they have all, all their pieces and they roll them up in a toilet paper roll. The kindergarten children parade through the school, two, four, six, eight, our writing's really great. One, two, three, four, we can't wait to write some more. And every child in the school comes out to collapse for those kindergartners. The, kinder, the first graders, second, third, fourth, fifth graders. And those children go through all the halls of the entire building with every child celebrating, yahoo, yahoo. And then they end up on the roof of the building and they're calling this chant out into the, into the New York City skyway, two, four, six, eight, our writing's really great. 
that says something about what the school believes in. It says something about the values of that school. And it says it not just to those new kindergartners, but to all of the people in that school. Or I think about Mark Fetterman's a magnificent principal of a 6 through 12 school. And he says to, to teachers when he hires them, he says, you know, we've got the East Side way. And I hope you adopt 90% of the East Side way, but not 100%. There'll be parts of it that are not quite right for you. He says, but what I absolutely insist on is you bring your own 10%. And he says, and I need what you bring to become part of what the East Side way is. So he has all of his teachers identify a best practices. So yours might be debate, interviewing. Yours could be interviewing. <laughs> and if that's your best practice, you and he work together, you and the principal work together to make sure that you take your best practice and make it better. So he sets up some learning opportunities for you so that you can do even more with your skill with interviewing. And then there's every week, different teachers' best practices are on display. So he will say, you know, this week, Brett's doing interviewing his best practice, periods two, four, and seven. Please make a point of stopping in there and getting a little sense to listen in on some of what he's doing. And he has these um, PD days in the library, and he'll have in every corner of the library, a teacher doing a five-minute trailer about their best practice. So you would do a five-minute trailer in one corner and another teacher a five-minute trailer about debate and another teacher about guided reading or strategy lessons. And he says, they're just five-minute trailers because all I want is for them to begin the conversations because we, we live together, we work together, we'll be able to have lots of time to follow up. But you see, those, those kinds of decisions about how to, how to create the, the fabric of a school that's beyond what happens in the classroom, they, they help to shape what the school means. You, you've mentioned feedback quite a bit. It, it definitely is sort of, I, I feel, a theme that you know, flows throughout the entire book. When you think about your experience as an emerging leader, what was the best piece of feedback you were given? Well, I don't know if there's any, uh, that's, a, that's a hard question, but I can tell you that I think that writing well and leading well have a lot to do with each other. You know, in writing, one of the things that you, that I try to do is to write with voice. So voice, um, writers describe voice as the, as the imprint of one's personality coming through, um, the sense of I'm here, uh, I'm real. So I try to write with, with voice um, to be present in my writing. And I try to lead with voice and to be present in my leadership. And I think that the best school leaders are, are people who bring, you know, you know that song, All of Me. Oh, why not? I'm not much of a singer, but, but I think that's it, is, is you, you bring yourself your foibles, your yearnings, your deepest passions, your your vulnerability, you know, you bring yourself to the to the work. I think I think that's important and I think if I bring myself and then I'm listening and I'm there in a real relationship with my people and I'm I'm trying to to grow something new together, I think I think we're on our way. Lucy, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is finding struggle, you know, when the going gets hard and they're just sort of in that place? Well, that's an interesting question because at the project, we have a, a whole thing we talk about to do with that. You know, when you're writing, what happens is at first it's, it's all flowing along and it's going easy. And then you start asking the, the hard questions. You start realizing it's not so great. And I read a, a book uh, about Pixar. Um, it's a, it was a book on creativity. And in this book, they, they talk about how actually the creative process is about letting things get hard. And they said that it's a little bit like you go in a tunnel and, you know, at first 
you're in the tunnel and you can see the light from where you've been. And that kind of tells you, you know, you sort of know where you're going because you, you have the light from where you've been. But you'll come in, in the process of creating, you outgrow that. You're like, no, I'm, I'm trying to do something new. I'm trying to do something better. And there comes to be a point where you're, you're in the total dark tunnel and there's no light from behind and there's no light from ahead. And as a writer, the, the only thing that can keep you going is that you've been here before. You've been in the dark tunnel in other times in your life. You've been the other dark tunnel in other writing projects. And you just kind of keep putting one foot in front of the next, knowing that, that you will, you will, you will emerge. And what's, what happens is you start to see some light ahead and you keep going and you end up in the light. Um, and I, I do think there's, you know, probably in many religions, there's the, the story of the resurrection, you know, there's the story of you have to, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous or Weight Watchers, you know, you have to, you have to get, you have to bottom out. You have to allow yourself, e even just in a story arc, if you just think of, of a story, um, you know, what is a story, but a character who has some motivations, who has some yearnings and encounters trouble. And that's not when you like quit and just like leave the story. Instead, that's where there's the rising action. That's where the character finds resources inside themselves that they never knew existed and, and inside of, in, in the environment and your, in your colleagues. So I think it's important to understand that trouble is part of it and embracing trouble and being willing to say, there's trouble here. That's where new energy comes. So I, I would say about the trouble is, yeah, and I'm glad you, I'm glad to somebody who says, I, I, I feel like we're mired, you know, I'm like, good, <laughs> own it. You know, if there are no dragons, there are no heroes. Um, so yeah, feel it, own it, yeah. make the trouble big, make it really big, rally the people around the trouble. Um, and, and you'll, you'll find that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And really what you're, it sounds like what you're saying is that's the moment to tap into that community that you've spent so much time building at that moment. Well, it's, it's the thing is there is always trouble and, uh, you know, just another, uh, I'm always referring to all these people I've learned from, but Roland Barth um, used to say to us, he says, the health of a building has to do with how many elephants there are in the room. Mm -hmm. And the elephants in the room are the things that everybody's talking about in the parking lot and in the bathroom, but nobody talks about in the in the public space. And he said, you know, in a healthy school, you talk about those things. You bring those elephants out of the closet and, and you talk about them. You bring it out into the open. Yeah. On the other side of that, what advice would you give for a school that's new to this work? Well, first of all, I would say if possible, you want to learn about it before you dive in. And I think you just want to learn how big and glorious and huge and all-encompassing and critical it can be um, so that you give yourself to this and so you do it well. You know, a vaccination is a little bit of a disease that guarantees that you develop the immunities against it. What you don't want is to adopt reading and writing workshop with just like one toe in, you know, poorly, uh, lest, lest you develop the immune, you know, we tried it, it didn't work. Um, far better to not to not go into this until you're ready to, to actually, actually be all in. Um, and then there's just lots of practical things. Um, so I'll just give you a, f a, f a few, but for example, I think this work is all about doing it to scale. Um, it's all about creating a community of practice. It's all about a shared curriculum. And truthfully, you can't really get high levels of reading and writing unless you're thinking about a K-5 or K-8 curriculum, because it's like you can't teach people to multiply fractions if they don't know how 
they don't understand fractions in the same way you can't teach kids to write research-based argument essays if they don't understand a personal essay. So having a, a, a whole school that's that's developing a curriculum where they can they're, they're standing on each other's shoulders is really important. That's the long-term goal. But a, a principal will have to decide, do I want to go to scale right away or am I going to start smaller? And what I would say about that is don't go to scale right away unless you've got internal capacity. You've got some people in your on your staff who who've been to the Summer Institute or had staff development or who who are are writers and readers themselves and love this kind of work. Um, make sure you have internal capacity before you go to scale, and and make sure that you have the public will that on the whole your teachers are. Are, are keen on this. If you don't have internal capacity and you don't have the public will, then I would suggest you start smaller. And there's a couple different ways to start smaller. One is to just after the high stakes tests, get people to do just a single unit. Um, so in, in the spring of the year, it's a very good time to pilot new work because teachers know their kids, they've got classroom management done. You know, if it's a disaster, they can send them off in the summer and be done with it, you know, so people feel safer. So Piloting a unit um, in May or April or May is is a, another way to get to help your school sort of develop the public will um, and to, to develop capacity, um, or ask for teachers who want to try it and get get a smaller group to get started, um, making sure that they do so in a way where they're basically creating a lab site right there and others can come in and learn from them. And the advantage of a smaller group is that you, the principal, can give that smaller group the planning time they need. You can give them the resources they need. So you make it likely for it to succeed. And, and meanwhile, everybody can learn off of all the things that they're learning. Our thanks to Lucy Calkins for her time today. If you'd like more information on her new book, Leading Well, Building School-Wide Excellence in Reading and Writing, you can find a sample chapter and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.